If you would, open your Bibles to Mark chapter 1. Mark chapter 1. Last week, we did a very broad <coughs> overview of the Gospel of Mark. And this series is called Life Redefined, Following Our Servant King Through the Book of Mark. And the title of last week's message, not this week's, but last week's message was Seeing Jesus for Who He Is. And we looked at the author. Um, we looked at the overall audience of who he was writing to and the overarching aim of the book. And the big idea that we looked at last week was the way we follow Jesus depends on our perspective of who Jesus is. And we looked at the identity and mission of Jesus. And one of the things we were looking to highlight last week was properly understanding Jesus' life really helps us redefine our life. You see, if we have the wrong Jesus or the wrong ideas about Jesus, it's going to lead us to the wrong pathway in following Jesus. And so we're wanting to, to understand who Jesus is according to what he said and what he did. And so Mark's gospel overall is going to highlight the servant king who is indeed worth following. With that in mind, we're going to be looking at Mark chapter 1, verses 1 through 8. And the title of today's message is The Proclamation of the King. The Proclamation of the King. But before we get into the text, I want you to imagine with me, think with me, Let's say you have been given the great and awesome, amazing task of preparing the announcement of a new king. And let's say, because this is a big deal, you're actually given like 30 years to prepare for this. And so as you're preparing, like, it, it's going to be big. It's going to be amazing. I mean, it's going to be like the Summer Olympics, but like times 100, right? Like, it's, it's this big, big deal. I mean, you should be sending out all of the invitations, um, you should be preparing all of the event. Uh, you should be having the fanfare, the food, all the, the fun festivals. It's all there. And hopefully, if you're doing this, right, you're going to have this extravagant entourage of people that are going to come. You know, the rich and the famous. Uh, those elite ones are gathering, right? I mean, this is a big deal. This is the king. And yet, in today's announcement of the proclamation of a king, we don't really see this royal entourage of royalty, but what we do see is this underlying story and theme of humility. And so the news, as we read this, may seem unplanned, but in reality, it's exactly as God has providentially planned, and we're going to see this. And so the big idea for today is this. A humble heart towards King Jesus leads to a life honoring King Jesus. You see, apart from this humility, we're never going to honor King Jesus in the way that we follow him. Our life should be redefined by him, and hopefully, even as we open the beginning section of Mark, we're going to see the story of humility, and this shouldn't really surprise us, surprise us because when we get into the life of humility, uh, the life of Christ, here's what we're going to see, a life of humility. And so hopefully today, that's going to be seen. So, it's interesting, as we read the scripture, you're not going to see the word humble or humility, and yet hopefully you're going to see that it's woven all throughout this text. And so having said that, let's ask the Lord to give us eyes to see and ears to hear this morning. Lord, thank you for today. Thank you for our gathering. This is a special day, not because of the place in which we meet, but because of you, you talk about where two or three are gathered. You were there in, their, in our name. And so, Lord, you're in our midst today. And so I pray that through the preaching of your word, uh, your, your Holy Spirit would work in the hearts of all individuals here, that we would see you for who you are and come to understand you better 
so that we may humble ourselves before you and honor you in all that we say and do. This is easier said than done, and we don't do it in our own accord. You don't tell us to just get our life in order. That's a work of you and your grace. And so we ask for your working in this presence here this morning. In Christ's name we pray, amen. Okay, so as we're going to set the stage here, Mark is going to be having the announcement of the Messiah. And hopefully what we're going to see is also not just this announcement of the Messiah, but we're going to see the humble response of man in this as well. Uh, Man humbly recognizing their sin, repenting of sin, and ultimately being restored to Christ. And so today, um, there's going to be kind of three observations we're going to hit. The first one's going to take the longest, and then we'll move from there. But we're going to see the promise of God in verses 1 through 3. And then we're going to see the purpose of John, or the it says the purpose of God. It could be the purpose of God, but also the purpose of John in verses 4 through 6. And then uh, the third one is provision of the Holy Spirit in verses 7 and 8. And so that's going to be a kind of a rough outline that we're going to seek to follow. So with that in mind, let's look at verse 1 of Mark 1. In the beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God, as it is written in Isaiah the prophet, see, I am sending my messenger ahead of you, And he will prepare your way. A voice of one crying out in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord, make his path straight. John came baptizing the wilderness and proclaiming a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. The whole Judean countryside and all the people of Jerusalem were out, were going out to him and they were baptizing by him in the Jordan River, confessing their sins. John wore a camel haired garment with a leather belt Uh, around his waist and ate locust and wild honey. He proclaimed, one is more powerful than I is coming after me. I am not worthy to stoop down and untie the straps of his sandals. I baptize you with water, but he will baptize you with the Holy Spirit. The promise of God. You know, Mark is super fast-paced gospel. Like, like he doesn't, we don't see any of the Christmas narrative, the nativity scene. He just jumps right, right past all of that. No, no young childhood, no, no, no uh, him going to the temple and his parents leaving him. There, there's none of that. He's just getting straight into the proclamation of the king has arrived just as God promised. It's like his pen only had so much ink. And so as he's seeking to, to write down this gospel letter, he's like, I, I just got I I so much time, so much ink, and I got to get to this. And so while that stuff's cool and that stuff's important, Mark, my buddy, uh, Mark, Matthew, you got that. Luke, you got that. Uh, I, I just got to get straight to this, the proclamation of the king to the people of Rome. That's what I got to get to. And so you're not going to see the genealogy. You're not going to see all these other things, the, the young childhood. You're just going to see this announcement of the coming king, the, the broader audience, if you will. And keep in mind from the audience, who is he speaking to? A lot of Gentiles, believers and unbelievers there in Rome, going much persecution. Um, and yet he also realizes that there could be Jews in that, in that sense. And he knows that his letter is going to go out beyond just one or two people, but, but beyond as well. And so he's going to write in such a way that is focused on the Gentiles, those without a Jewish background. But he's also going to... Um, sprinkle in aspects where the Jews would resonate with what he's saying, and they're going to be tracking what he's following. And so with that in mind, look at verse 1. It says, in the beginning there, you'll see the, the gospel. And in general, this word is the proclamation of good news. In fact, in the Old Testament, 
the same word translated, they don't write it gospel there, but they write the same Greek word of gospel and good news, and so they're interchangeable. So he could have written gospel here or good news. Same thing, in fact, other Bibles translated that way. But here's this joyous message. Well, what is gospel? In the general sense, it's the message of salvation. Well, what's important for us to understand? How the first century um, believers would have understood this word. So Jews, uh, if they're, they're thinking correctly, they're going to go back to Isaiah chapter 40. In Isaiah chapter 40, remember, we're talk, talking about the promises of God, things that he promised of times of old, prophesied about these things. Um, they're going to be talking about a near future deliverance of Israel from Babylon captivity, and yet also a, not near, but a, a far future coming Messiah. And so this is what it says in verse 1 of Isaiah 40. Comfort, comfort my people, says your God. Speak tenderly to Jerusalem and announce to her that her time of hard service is over. Her iniquity has been pardoned. So that's good news as Isaiah is writing this. Hey, uh, some of your punishment for your rebellion and sin, um, that's going to be ended and we're going we're gonna to make things right. I'm going to restore you. But that's going to be short term. That's going to be nearsighted because the, the, the other aspects of what he writes isn't fulfilled in that time. It's, it's pointing forward. So it's two sides, same coin. Yes, fulfilled here, but also fulfilled later. So that's what he's going to be getting at. And so as we fast forward to verse 9, look there. It says this, Zion, herald of good news or gospel. Go up on a high mountain, Jerusalem, herald of good news. Raise your voice loudly. Same word as the gospel here. Raise it. Do not be afraid, says the city of Judah. Here is your God, as in your God has arrived. Okay? God did not arrive back then. It's talking about a future Messiah arriving on the scene. Well, who is this Jesus? Well, verse 10 says this. See, the Lord God comes with strength and his power established his rule. His wages are with him. So who, who brings the, the, the wages? It's Jesus that's going to pay our debt. Okay? And his reward accompanies him. Where is our reward found? Our reward is found in Christ. He's pointing to this. He's pointing to this Messiah. He protects his flock like a shepherd. He gathers the lambs in his arms and carries them to the fold of his garment. He gently leads them, leads those who are nursing. This wasn't fulfilled in their day when this was written. This is pointing to a future day, a Messiah who would come and be the rescuer, and, and would, would fulfill these promises. So the announcing of the arrival of King Jesus, the Messiah, would bring restoration, and he would bring rule and people. He's talking about Christ, the Messiah, who would descend from heaven, who would die and give his life on a cross, who would rise again, and then ascend to his rightful throne to rule and reign from there. While we do not fully experience and understand it just yet, there is a day when we will do it. And so although we live in a world of, of craziness and chaos, this is true. The reality is, this is all temporary. When we're thinking of eternal, he's not talking about a temporal king that would come, come here on the scene and then go. He's talking eternal king here. And so this is a huge, huge deal. And so this word for gospel or good news, in reality, is the best news. Because he's not talking about something temporal. He's talking about something uh, of major, major impact. Eternal king, eternal kingdom. This new king is going to bring this salvation from his sovereign throne. And so while the return of Babylonian exile would occur, the restoration would be 
short term. And they clearly know this as they're reading this because they're, now they're under the oppression and persecution of Rome. Like they're not looking back at Isaiah and be like, oh yes, this is, this is awesome. We are being killed day and night and day and night we are being killed. This is amazing. No, they, they're, they're wondering when is this Messiah going to come and establish his kingdom and when and what will this look like? And so we're going to see this forerunner that's going to be proclaiming, he's coming, he's coming, this Messiah is coming, wait for it, wait for it. And so the good news, the gospel refers to the announcement of the arrival of a king. This would have been known to the Jewish hearers, but it's also going to be made known to the Gentiles as well. I was reading this week, there was an inscription from 9 BC, and it summarized, basically indicated this that the arrival of Caesar Augustus is the arrival of God himself. The inscription was dedicated to him on his birthday, and the inscription highlighted the good news of his triumphant rule and reign over the world. And so the Gentiles knew the term gospel or good news because it indicated a ruling authority. So when Caesar Augustus would rise to power, it's like he's been sent and he is God ruling over this world. Good news, Caesar Augustus is here. Good news, the gospel of Augustus is here. So when he says gospel or good news, he's not pointing to any of these former or current rulers. Because right away, what does he say? He immediately goes to the gospel of Jesus Christ. And so the language of Mark would resonate with all the readers, particularly those in Rome. There is a new king in town. He's coming, he's coming. Who would be establishing this eternal kingdom? And it's not Emperor Caesar, it's not Emperor Nero, it's the eternal king, Jesus Christ, the Son of God. Many of you were smart, and so you, you probably know this, Jesus, his human name, Yeshua, right? It's Hebrew for Joshua, but what does that mean? Well, Yahweh is salvation, which is why in Matthew it says, call him Jesus, for he will save his people. So he goes to Jesus, identifying who he is. His name means salvation to people. But then Christ, it, Christ isn't his last name. Christ is his title, title of who he is. It's his royal title. We've already talked last week about Christ meaning anointed one. This means Messiah. So right away, these hearers are putting together, well, his, his first name is going to be Jesus, and he's going to be the anointed one, the Messiah, the one that can actually bring redemption to man, that can actually restore relationship between God and man. He is going to be the reconciler. That's who Jesus Christ will be. And it says the Son of God, this is his lineage. This is the one who is from God, co-equal, co-existing, co-eternal with God. This is the new king that they're talking about and the new kingdom. And so Mark highlights this announcement and the ascent of him coming to the throne. And so throughout the book of Mark, here's what we're going to see. He lays the foundation right here in verse 1 of the deeds and words of who Jesus is. But then as we get halfway through the book, then we're going to see um, him being delivered to the cross and the eventual resurrection. Why? It's all, it's all the consummating of the king. We're going to see him enter the scene, but all of it's leading to this day of him being enthroned in heaven as the king overall. And so he's wanting us to see this very early here. You know, um, in verse 2 and 3, the promise of the new king is it's, it's right here. The prophecies ascribed to Isaiah, but it includes others as, as well. And so what we're going to see is, although verse 2 and 3 is not just Isaiah, it's actually a combination of Malachi 3 
Malachi 3.1, and then Isaiah 43. But oftentimes they would do this um, when referring, rather than giving a, a chapter and verse, which they couldn't have done at that time, they'd say, oh, the, I, Isaiah the prophet said this, because he's like the most prominent and popular one, but then other prophets would say it as well. And so rather than losing them in all of the details, he's just kind of summarizing. Remember, he only has so much ink in his pen. And so, so he's saying this just to give them the quick overview. And so just like a heralder of a new king, the heralder, the one that's going to make that pronouncement, is appointed by the king. Do any of you ever watch the State of the Union Address? I can watch it for about the first five minutes. To me, the most exciting part is the first five minutes because the president's back there, and then everyone's out here, and then someone comes out in a suit, and he says, Ladies and gentlemen, the President of the United States of America. And the crowd goes wild. Well, half the crowd goes wild, and then the other half doesn't, right? Which is exactly what we're going to see with Jesus coming on the scene. Half the crowd going wild, oh, and half the crowd ready to throw stones. But here's what we know. Just like the heralder of the President of the United States, that's appointed, like, He's not doing that without the president's approval, okay? And so here's what he's wanting to understand, and, and the audience understood this as well. Anytime there's an announcement, anytime the king is coming to town, it's a big deal, and that's going to be made known. And so here's what we see. We're going to see that this wasn't accidental. This isn't just John shooting off the cuff, just like, yeah, I'm going I'm to talk about Jesus coming. No, 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 no. This was promised long ago. And this should be humbling for us to understand God's big picture plan of all of this. So when he's talking about the king is coming, he is actually being made known what has been revealed or hinted at in the Old Testament. And here he's going to make it known. And so Mark uses the, the, the prophecy to point out Christ, but he also is going to use the, the, the one who's going to point him to Christ. And so what he wanted to do was to authenticate the messenger of Christ before he gets to the message of Christ. Because... Um, they understand if you're going to introduce a king, there has to be someone that announces this king, which is why he starts right out of the gate with John the Baptist and this big announcement, this big proclamation. And so he goes to Isaiah, and it says this in Isaiah chapter 40. A voice of one crying out, prepare the way of the Lord in the wilderness. Make a straight highway for our God in the desert. He's not setting up shop in town. In fact, what we're going to see is everyone from town is actually coming to him. And this shouldn't be a big surprise because if you're looking to connect the dots from Old Testament to New Testament, oftentimes what you see is God uh, doing something in the wilderness and bringing them through or bringing salvation out of the wilderness, right? When they were in exile, think Moses, okay? They, they are brought out of captivity into the wilderness. They dwell there and then eventually would be entering into a promised land. Babylon captivity, when they had to go from there back to Israel to set up camp in Jerusalem, where are they going to travel through? In their journey, they're going to travel through the wilderness. And so this wilderness picture of bringing salvation, bringing deliverance, is going to come as a result of just things that were common and known and, and pictured and foretold in the Old Testament. And so he wants them to see this, to understand this. And so the prophecies, prophecies actually go together perfectly of Malachi, the introductory one, and then of Isaiah, the really important one. And so today, um, we see these messengers, prepare the way, prepare the way. But if you recall earlier from Isaiah, what we read, um, 
they were going to talk about this this rising to power. They're going to talk about this God will be with you. Well, God wasn't physically with them. And so he's pointing them to this proclamation of God literally dwelling among men. And so remember, at the time of prophecy, it was both near and far. And so preparing the way in the wilderness, that would be done by John the Baptist. And so both Jews and Gentiles would have come to understand this. This establishment of the king and the kingdom, well, he'd be different than all other kings. He would be promised by God, and he would actually be God in flesh dwelling amongst men. And so the arrival of Jesus' birth, and it was one of humility. The arrival of Jesus going into Jerusalem on a donkey, that was one of humility. And here the announcement of a coming Messiah marks a humble beginning as well. I mean, think about it. This is a pivotal point in God's big plan of redemptive history. It's providentially planned by God. It's promised by God in the Old Testament. And we must humbly seek to acknowledge, hear this, we must seek to acknowledge the promises and providential plans of God that are far beyond our comprehension. They didn't see it, they didn't understand it. In your life and my life, we must come to realize we cannot wrap our mind around this great, huge, amazing, sovereign God that we serve. We need, we need to realize that, that he is God, he is creator and sustainer of all, and we are his created beings. And there's, there comes a certain element where we need to bow and recognize him and honor him in that and, and humbly say, we are not worthy, but Lord, by your goodness, by your grace, we can come to know you more and more. This is what John's wanting to prime the pump within their hearts to realize. And so we're going to pivot now and look at verses 4 through 6 because uh, we want to talk about the purposes of God, the purposes of John here. Well, why is John here? It says he's here to prepare the way. Right, to, to clear the runway, to, to point them to the Messiah. And just as God delivered people in the wilderness of Egypt, he would take them through the wilderness. We talked about this, deliver them out of that. He's talking about the deliverer of Christ, and he's coming out of the wilderness here. And next week or the weeks to come, we're going to see Jesus coming from where? Well, we'll don't want to ruin that, but it's coming, it's coming. He's wanting them to understand this. Well, the wilderness theme of the Old Testament also highlights a prophet. Matthew 11 talks about this, and we're not going to turn there, but, but John is really a turning point in this redemptive story. You see, Mark realized the role of John, and John the Baptist, he realized his role as well. He realized he was serving and representing not just a heralder of the king, uh, but he was actually a prophet of God seeking to proclaim these things so that man would know. And so oftentimes uh, those that understand Old Testament would, sit, would seek to link between him, the prophet uh, Elijah, and John the Baptist. And so here's what... Um, here's what his purpose is. Uh, and I think you see it, it's, it's right there pave the pathway, prepare the hearts for the soon coming arrival of King Jesus. When you think of clearing a pathway, um, let's say we're trying to get through a large crowd. Uh, we're, we're trying to make way for, for the one to come. John is seeking to make way. There's lots of confusion, lots of people talking, lots of talking heads about this, that, and the other. And he's wanting to pave the way of like, no, 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 no. He's not here yet, but he's coming. He's coming, and I want, I want you to know about it. So I'm looking to, to make that known. And he's seeking to do that. He's seeking to prepare the way. And so look at verse 4. It says, John came baptizing 
in the wilderness and proclaiming a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. You might be saying, well, what is this? Well, John wasn't concerned with the rituals of baptism, but the means of one identifying a heart of repentance and desire to be clean. You see, the baptism that he was doing was just getting people wet. There's no saving power in it. There's no forgiveness in it. There's none of that. But this is what prophets of the Old Testament would have done. Uh, You could read um, Isaiah chapter 1, verse 16, Ezekiel 36, verse 25. This baptism was preparation for the forgiveness and cleansing that Christ would accomplish. It's this picture of cleansing. It's this showing the inward heart of, I want to be clean. I want to to repent and, and, and be forgiven. I want to be restored unto God. And this is what he's pointing them to. Repent, call upon the Lord. Examine your life, examine your ways. Look in the mirror, examine, acknowledge your wrongs and repent and and be prepared for the Messiah who is coming. And so he's saying in humility, seek to honor the anointed one. Bow the knee to the righteous one. He is coming, he is coming. And so John's approach and this announcement, oh, was very uncommon. But you know what else was uncommon? John's spirit of humility. You see, John didn't seek to be a high and holy prophet. He actually seems to humbly call others to humble themselves. He wasn't looking to make a name for himself. You look at all the religious leaders of this time, they're looking to make a name for themselves. They're they're getting up on a platform in the middle of of town and and look at me and look at my garments and listen to my eloquent speech and, and, and how I pray and how I interact. And oh, look at me. They weren't at all looking to point people to the Messiah. In fact, when the Messiah would come on, on the scene, they, they want nothing to do with him because there's the Messiah, he's doing all sorts of miracles. He's stealing my popularity, my power, my influence. And those who would be humble enough to receive and repent would, would be able to, to see and come to know this Messiah. So he says, the time is now. Get ready, get ready. Well, how, how did they respond? Look there at verse 5. The whole Judea countryside and all the people of Jerusalem were going out to him, going out to the place of deliverance, the wilderness, right? And they were baptized by him in the Jordan River. The Jordan River, once again, Old Testament is a place of deliverance where they they get here and cross. So there's all these things. And what are they doing there? They're confessing their sins. They came out from everywhere, both rich and poor, urban and rural and educated and uneducated, that they're coming. And they're coming with a heart of repentance. They're wanting to turn from their sin. They're confessing. They're acknowledging their sin. And what are they doing? They're being baptized. They're going public. Uh, This is the outward confession of their inward heart. This is a heart of humility. I want to be made right. I want to come to know this king. I want to come to know this Messiah. Well, the humble, they yield to the call. The proud, they resist the call. The humble person receives the way of God. Prepare the way of God, prepare the way of God. Yes, yes. The, the proud does not. They rebel against the way of God. Oh, he's not my Messiah. He's not my king. We want someone to establish their kingdom now and, and to overthrow Rome. That's what we want. No, 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 no. The humble confesses their sin. The, the proud conceals their sin. That's why when Jesus would rebuke them, they would want nothing to do with that, right? He saw the wickedness of their heart, and they, 
The humble, here's what we see, are cleansed and the prideful are condemned. They're they're cleansed. A.W. Tozer said this, for the Christian, humility is absolutely indispensable. Without it, there can be no self-knowledge, no repentance, no faith, and no salvation. Humility is so important because apart from it, we, we can experience none of these good things. And so this would be true of John, but it would also be true of these humble believers, these, these humble people that are there hearing this message of John. They're responding. You might think, man, it sounds like John is being harsh. No, he's simply calling the people to humbly evaluate their lives for the holy and righteous king is coming on the scene. You don't want to be caught up in sin when he comes on the scene. Uh, why, why, why not just get ready for his arrival? I mean, I don't know how many of you, when you have maybe uh, house guests coming, Thanksgiving is around the corner, and I don't know, I mean, do you just say, oh, yeah, come on in, or do you try to prepare, you try to get your house in order a little bit for the arrival of people? He's just saying, hey, why don't you do a little inventory, why don't you get your house in order? He's not saying, fix all your problems. He's saying, identify the, the sinful clutter in your life, confess that stuff, but prepare, open the, the, the heart, the, the, the gateway, and allow Christ to do a great work when he arrives on the scene. That's what he's wanting you to see and understand and comprehend. What about you? Humility is an essential element to truly honor Christ, to truly honor the king. Apart from humility, you cannot honor the king. And John's going to be show, showing this, proclaiming this. And so, you know, we've heard the announcement But now let's look at verse 6 as we look at the appearance. This is just weird once again, right? Like, John, I mean, he he, he talks about this repentance, and they're they're, they're baptizing, they're getting wet, they're going public of, yes, I want to be ready, I'm I'm looking to to live right and confess this and all this stuff. And then he just, verse 6, John wore a camel hair garment with a leather belt around his waist and ate locust and wild honey. You know, as we think of a king's forerunner, uh, what comes to your mind? Probably not John the Baptist. I mean, you're, you're going to be rolling out the carpet for the king, right? Um, you're going to be having the royal entourage, the, the hunter horse escort, uh, the, the person that's going to represent the king. He's going to have uh, maybe the best outfit. He's going to represent the king well. And what do we see? Some guy wearing a camel coat with this weird belt and just like eating, I mean, You've seen the kid, you know, flannel graph, like they're eating bugs and honey, and he's like, ah, he looks like a wild animal. Like, what is going on here? Why this? Well, he's wanting to be distinctly different than all of the other so-called prophets in and amongst them, the false prophets. And he's wanting to identify. He's once again wanting to connect dots of Old Testament. And this is what we see. When you go to Old Old Testament, 2 Kings chapter uh, 1, verse 8, You see this prophet Elijah coming out of the wilderness. They replied, a hairy man with a leather belt around his waist. He said, it's Elijah. This right away, as he's describing John the Baptist, he's wanting them to understand Old Testament to New Testament and see and connect these dots of the prophet then and the prophet now. And that's what he's doing. But think about this. Living in the wilderness, living off locust, this was just one humble means in which John would be distinctly different than all those leaders. Uh, He was living this life of humility, forsaking the comfort and luxury of life. He chose humility. 
You see, he didn't want the accolades of man. What he actually wanted to do was point man to the anointed one. That's what he wanted to do. He's not looking to make it about him. Look at me, John the Baptist has arrived on the scene. No, 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 no. He's actually wanting to diffuse from him and prepare the way to point to Christ. That's what he's wanting to do. That's what he wants them to see. And so hopefully, may God uh, call us. I mean, think about this. God may not call you to live in the wilderness to eat locusts. Hopefully, that's, that's not you. I, I, I mean, you have a nice beard, but uh, you, listen, here, here's what I come to understand. Christ does call us to live distinctly, distinctively different than the world. There ought to be something distinctively different about us. And John was that man, distinctly different. And, and that's why he points it out. Like, why else does he write it in there? He wants them to understand this this guy, this prophet is different than the others. And he's willing to uh, bypass the comforts and coziness of living in town with all the other rich leaders and all these things. No, no, he's not wanting that. He's actually wanting to be set apart to prepare the way for Christ the King. Hey, let's look at our very last thing and then we'll be done. Provision of the Holy Spirit. Provision of the Holy Spirit, verses 8 and 9, or 7 and 8. And we're going to see here, I mean, once again, the humility, the humility of John the Baptist. John did not have, John did not have this awesome appearance, but here's what he did have. He had an audible message that also showed forth his humility. Look at verse 7. He proclaimed, one who is more powerful than I is coming after me. I am not worthy to stoop down and untie the strap of his sandals. I baptize you with water, but he will baptize you with the Holy Spirit. You see, John isn't looking to rise to power. He actually, in humility, is seeking to point them to the power source. He's looking to point them to Christ, who would bring forth the Holy Spirit of God. You see, John had some power. Uh, but he recognized his limitations and wanted to make that known. He says, I'm not worthy. Who am I? He had this honest statement, but it's actually a very humble statement. You know that phrase, to stoop down and untie the straps of his sandals? Especially for those in Rome, they would have got this picture of a master and slave. You see, because if I'm a master and I have slaves, my shoes are extremely dirty, and I'm not going to reach down and touch those. I have the slaves to do that. Like, that's the lowest of the low. And here's what John is saying. I'm not even worthy to do that. He's not looking to minimize and woe is me. The only thing he's really looking to do is maximize Christ and exalt Christ as the king and the Messiah, the anointed one. I, 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 who am I? I am unworthy. I, I, I don't even deserve to do that. And that's the low of the low. I, I'm below that. This is the humility of John the Baptist here. But look at this, verse 8. It says, that, baptized with water. And we already talked about this, right? The baptism of him, it just gets you wet. It's this public picture of cleansing. But the coming king will bring about a greater baptism. You're like, what does that mean? You see, John's baptism was that picture of cleansing, but it had no power. It did nothing. You see, when, when, when Christ comes on the scene, he's going to talk about this gift that he's going to grant to the believer. 
He's going to gift them. He's going to outpour his Holy his Spirit, his Holy Spirit upon the believer. It's going to overflow him. And through the Holy Spirit working within man, it's going to bring this cleansing. That, that we can receive repentance. It's going to bring this sanctifying, this, this making us more like Jesus. There's true power, true transformation as a result of the Spirit of God. John couldn't fix anybody. You know, maybe some of you are good at like fixing your car, fixing house, house projects, whatever. Um, I'm not good at fixing any of those things. I love YouTube, and YouTube is helpful. Um, but I, I'm just not a fixer. And at times, I try to fix myself. You ever try to do that? <laughs> and at, try, at times, I try to fix other people. And here's what I have found. I mean, you, you live in my home for a day, and you'll see I, I, can't, I can't fix anybody. <laughs> I, can, I can try, right? But ultimately, here's what I come to know. I make a horrible savior, I make a horrible lord, and I make a horrible king. And I want to say this kindly, and so do you. My, my friends, if we could fix everything, there would be no need for a king. There would be no need for a savior. There would be no need for a messiah. There would be no need for a, a, an anointed one. We need King Jesus. And this is what he's pointing them to. Like, I can do this baptism all day long, and you can outwardly profess and confess and, and have this picture of cleanliness, but I can't forgive you of your sins. I'm not, I don't have that power. I don't have that authority, and I can't, I can't transform you. That transforming work is actually the work of God within your life, and I don't have that power. He recognized that. He wasn't trying to aim for more power. I mean, a lot of those religious leaders aiming, grabbing for power. And he's like, nope, I, I got nothing. <laughs> I got nothing on this king that's coming. He has it all. He's pointing them to that. You know, sometimes we might say, oh, man, I got this. You know, I don't, I don't need help. Uh, I can overcome. You fill in the blank, whatever that struggle is. But the fact is, we, we do need help. And Christ would come. Why? Not for the benefit of himself, but for the benefit of us. Um, we need to have this humility because we, God did not design us, create us to overcome these struggles apart from him. In fact, he actually allows us to live in this sin-cursed world and to hurt and to feel the hurts. Why? So that we could realize and recognize our need of him. You see, through, through humility, through true humility, we can dethrone ourselves as being Lord and King of our lives. And through humility, we can yield to Christ as our Lord and King. This is what he calls us to. Humility. Um, in this, in this, Christ is exalted. In this, Christ is made known. In this, Christ is manifested through a spirit of humility. I want to close with one theologian quote. I read this week, I thought it was great. Listen to this. Just, just, just let this wash over you. The Christian gospel is that I am so flawed that Jesus had to die for me. And yet I am so loved and valued that Jesus was glad to die for me. This leads to deep humility and deep confidence at the same time. It undermines both swaggering and sniveling. I cannot feel superior to anyone, and yet I have nothing to prove to anyone. I do not think more of myself or less of myself. Instead, I think of myself less. Thinking of Christ more. Think of John the Baptist, not worthy to untie the shoe sandals. 
That's the, that's the point of humility. And that's what he wanted to point them to. And even today, that's what he wants to point us to. That we would say, I'm not worthy, but yet I'm loved by you. And because of that, we should be drawn to humility and then to just seek to honor this king. My friends, the only way to honor Christ is to have a humble heart towards Christ. And so the big idea that hopefully we saw today is a humble heart towards King Jesus leads to a life honoring King Jesus. Let's pray.